The word ethics may not be the first thing that comes to mind when you think about data, but in fact, across the data life cycle, there are so many points in which we are making value-based decisions, decisions about what matters to us, and even more difficultly, what matters more to us than other things. We talked with Josh Grenowitz a while back from Odd Duck about you know, whether there should be sort of a Hippocratic oath for data of do no harm. But today with Alexander Robinson, we dive into the complexities of data ethics and how oftentimes the values and things we care about can be in conflict when we have to make decisions about data. And we have to sometimes choose how to prioritize things that are most important to us while minimizing the damage that we might do in another place. So today, please join me with Alexander Robinson to talk about data ethics across the entire space of how we collect, use, and disseminate data. Hello, and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, where we explore the human side of analytics to help amplify the impacts of those out to change the world. With me, Alexandra Mannerings. Thank you so much for joining me today, Alexandra, which is exciting to say. I love that someone else has my same name. I am very excited to have you here. And I was wondering if you could start by introducing yourself and also where you're coming to us from, since we come from all over the place these days. Great. My name is Alexandra Robinson. I'm calling in from Washington, D.C., and I'm the head of data ethics and social impact at a tech startup called Threshold.World. Excellent. How did you find yourself there? So my career has been a bit of a winding road. Um, I grew up always thinking that I would become a prosecutor. Um, I wanted to work specifically in prosecuting gender-based violence crimes internationally. And I worked abroad and lived abroad in rural Northeastern Thailand during college, and then really wanted to go back overseas after college. So right after graduation, I moved to Nepal thinking that I would stay there for three months for a legal internship. I randomly learned the language before I moved and really fell in love with the language. And I ended up staying two and a half years and I showed up there with a suitcase full of LSAT books thinking that I would come home and go to law school. I had a ridiculous plan and I threw that out the window. So when I I got to Nepal, um, I was working as a legal intern, um, but because I could speak the the language somewhat, I got to go up into a district called Sindhu Palchuk that has a history of, of trafficking to India and um, meet with women there and, and see my colleagues at work. And our conversations there kind of inspired some research questions around what the new trends were in trafficking, because we were hearing women come back from the Gulf and not from India. It's incidences of forced labor, mainly as domestic workers. And they were coming back and their cases weren't being heard by the by law enforcement because they didn't fall neatly into the, the human trafficking law, but they also didn't fall neatly under the labor exploitation law because they hadn't gone through legal channels. So um, I ended up designing a research method and getting hired to go across the countries with some awesome researchers and speak with, with women and, and children across the country and with law enforcement. And I fell in love with 
research and I fell in love with using data. So from there, I ended up working with a partner organization to design forensic intake systems from victims on the, the border of India to understand how women were, were crossing the border, where they were ending up, uh, what the trends were, and, and using that information to map uh, trafficking and, and labor exploitation networks um, and training people along the border how to, to collect data in a trauma-informed way that didn't inadvertently hurt people that uh, they were interviewing because being in these situations can be a really, really sensitive context to collect data. Um, So long story short, I fell in love with data and analytics and I skipped law school altogether. And I've been working kind of in the human rights and humanitarian and tech and data space for over 10 years now. And it makes sense, you know, we're going to have a conversation about data ethics today, that you bring that awareness to the power of data, both from the side of understanding how it can answer questions, right? You spent all of this time researching, gathering critical information, critical data to help inform strategies to help battle human trafficking. But then you also understood and had firsthand experience with the considerations that need to go into collecting data. I like to say that we borrow data or we rent data from the people who give it to us rather than somehow we own it once we've asked it from somebody. And I think when you have that mindset, like you're saying, that you become aware of like, what is it costing someone to let me have access to this information? And it's critical information I need, and we're going to do great work with it. But let's make sure we pay attention to how we've gotten access to that data. So I think that's a great transition straight into what do we even mean by this term data ethics? Because I think on the surface, some people will think about how can data have ethics? It's cold and heartless, like it has nothing to do with ethics. So talk to me a little bit about really what data ethics are. So data ethics are just the values and principles related to the collection, management, ownership, use, and sharing of data. So in the same way that we have values as organizations about how we work, how we do programming, we can apply those same types of values to how we interact with data. And I think that it's important to think about that because sometimes the decisions that we make about collecting data are made either unconsciously or without us acknowledging that they were a decision. And so we don't realize that there are points at which values were either applied or ignored (laughs) or different values were applied. And if we're not explicit about those decision points, if we don't take the time to recognize those decision points, they're getting made, but they may be getting made in a way that is not in line with the values that you have or the values that your organization has. Absolutely. I think one thing that's difficult about data ethics in the same way any of our organizational values are is that any set of ethics can often be in tension with other values and norms within the same list of our values. So For example, we may hold the value of data minimization. So only collecting what is absolutely necessary to collect, um, where we also may have an organizational value about innovation and wanting to do things that are new and have breakthroughs that have impact. Um, So those values can be intention with one another. And often there isn't an easy way to navigate that tension. 
That is a great point. I mean, that's true of all of life. That if, when you have more than one value, it's going to probably conflict with some other value that you hold at some point. And so while there is not going to be necessarily a default obvious solution to it, being aware of all of those values that are in play, being able to have a discussion about the prioritization of those values and when you uphold one value over another value or where you compromise a little bit on one to support more of another, being transparent and explicit and open about those conversations. Absolutely. So I think, generally speaking, we'll understand why it's important to be a good person, whether we're working with data or something else. So hopefully data ethics to some extent comes as, okay, I understand why we would have that. But do you have some uh, more explicit or maybe potentially uh, reasons that people aren't aware of why we really want to pay attention to data ethics? Yeah, I think that data ethics can feel esoteric and overwhelming and that technology changes really, really fast. And when things are fast moving or abstract, there can be a tendency to shy away from it, to avoid it, to assume it's just going to be too overwhelming or that our organization just is in no place to handle these really fast moving, highly technical questions. Um, in reality, whether or not we are doing the most advanced analytics or we're collecting data on paper, um, in our programs and work, we are collecting data. And it's important to remember that, particularly when we're collecting personal information or engaging communities or individuals, that every data point represents a human life um, and that we have responsibility as stewards of, of resources and participants in programs that we have a responsibility to, to honor that and to honor each individual that those data points represent. I think we also need to remember that the data that we collect, the technology that we use and what we do with that data, it doesn't just affect the individuals from whom we collect data from in a particular context, but particularly as technology scales and information spreads faster, there can be implications for people outside of those communities. And that the impact of what we do with data, how we do research, how we share those research findings, how we use technology can be more complex and scaled than we've ever understood before. I think that's a really critical point to bring up the fact that, you know, intellectually you might understand the importance of data ethics, but because you said it's this esoteric thing in a very fast moving technical space, it's one thing to say, yeah, 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 that's important. And it's another to actually stop take the time and put the effort into making sure that you are applying it rather than getting caught up in solving the technical problems or just trying to keep up with the speed that things are moving. I think science, like biology right now is, is a very similar space, right? We've developed CRISPR. If you look at like embryonic research, we're hitting these bounds where technology and science can do things far ahead of us having any conversations about what we should do with them or whether we should be doing them at all. And so it's like the technology is moving much faster than we're able to have these conversations. And if we don't stop and say, we really need to be having these conversations before we proceed, we're going to get ourselves in a heap of trouble. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, there's similar issues in how we in the, the development and social impact space have developed 
programs, regardless of technology and data. So let's say that we are developing a social impact model that is designed for a specific community in a time and place. And we consult with those community members. And our research and our design is really specific to that community. And then we try and replicate it in another context with the same assumptions that the harms that we analyze in that context are the same as in another context. And all of a sudden it doesn't work or there are negative social harms that take place. It's the same thing with technology. So let's say we develop a mobile application for teenagers in rural U.S. and we look at risk and harms in that context and then we try and replicate that in another context that has different gender norms, different regulations or an adversarial government or other things. And we don't consult with people in that area. We don't understand context. We could have blind spots that really affect how that technology and that data is used or misused in another context. It's funny because that's a great example of values being in conflict because from a sort of gold standard of data collection, you always want everything to be identical, right? If I'm going to try to collect data from two different places and I want it to be comparable, I'm going to do it exactly the same way to make sure that it's comparable. But to your point, that desire for like identical repeatability can be in conflict with our desire to be sensitive to new areas. And so having a conversation of like, how can we keep this as scientifically valid as possible while also making sure that we're not like damaging people in the collection of this data. Mm -hmm. That's where you really, as an organization, one have to understand uh, what your risk appetite is, but also understand risk contextually. So um, if we, we espouse the principles of do no harm, which again, is that's murky because there are all sorts of risks and harms that we we assess trade-off with our, our own tolerance for risk and whose risks and what risk. But there are trade-offs between replicability and the potential to do no harm. But again, if you're not looking at things in a local context and you're not hearing from people that really understand what those potential harms are, then you're not going to be able to make a good decision there. No, exactly. Do you have any examples of like specific examples in real life of data ethics either not being considered or being considered, you know, inappropriately or ineffectively? Yeah, this <laughs> it happens all all the time. So, I think that our blind spots as technologists and tech designers and teams comes into play a lot. So sometimes it's not a malicious intention. It's that our blind spots are representative of deeper societal issues. So there are gender gaps in the data science, computer science, technology field on whole. There are many power inequities and racial inequities, gender inequities in tech. And there are longstanding reasons for those things. So you might have a organization, a technology company, a team, a group of people that aren't setting out to do harm, but because of longstanding patterns of inequity and exclusion 
have too many blind spots to realistically identify harm at all. And whether or not that is malicious or intentional, it doesn't mean it's acceptable or that we as as a society should allow that to continue. So when we look at things like algorithmic bias and we see consequences in that the algorithms that we develop for photo recognition are less accurate for black and brown faces than they are white faces. There are longstanding factors at play in the lack of diversity and representation in tech and who is creating those algorithms and who is making decisions around what technologies are approved and and put out there into the world that shape how those technologies are used and what data is used to inform them. So the real world consequences happen and they exacerbate power dynamics and injustices that already exist. Um, So I, I think when we look at the harms that can be caused by technology, we have to look at the harms that are existing out there in the real world and system and assume that any technology that we apply to a social problem or trying to do social good can exacerbate those same dynamics that exist out in the quote-unquote wild. It's easy to think that we can create something from scratch that's brand new, but really what happens is we tend to recreate with what already exists and just assemble it in a slightly different way. And so thinking about the fact, like, how have we influenced the data? It's not just sprung out of the ground fresh. It's come from somewhere. And so if we've had historical biases, even if they're not even an ism bias, like the the way you've collected it, if you've left out a group, I always like to use the example of, you know, if you're calling landlines, you're going to lose anyone under the age of 40. And it's not even like you're like ageist. You don't hate people under 40. Just the method that you've used is excluding a group from participating. And so like if that's how your data has been collected in the past, it's going to have. And then you're running, like you said, algorithms off of this data that is incomplete in a directional way. You're going to screw it up. And the other important thing you said about, too, is this idea that if you're recognizing harm coming from something, if you don't have the people who are being harmed at the table, how are you really going to actually identify and speak to that harm? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what are some of the critical areas then that we really need to be paying attention to data ethics? Like it's one for us to be like, have data ethics and use them. But like, what are all the places, what are those decision points that we need to really be looking at? So I like to think of the whole data journey from the point of one, designing the processes that are going to lead to the collection of data to the actual collection of data, particularly when we're talking about working with individuals. So like, what is that first point of contact where data is collected, whether that's face-to-face or remotely, et cetera, how that data is processed and stored. So how is it getting to the next place at each point in that journey? Um, How is it managed? How is it analyzed, aggregated, protected, 
And then how do we uh, share that data, whether that's with other parties, other organizations, or sharing that with internal stakeholders, sharing that with external stakeholders, sharing that back with people whose data that we collected. And then how do we store it and retain it and protect it in the long term? What are we doing with that data? Are we deleting it? Are we anonymizing it? Are we keeping it indefinitely or or not? I think about that. Um, I, I did. I was briefly involved in some animal research when I was in college and deeply conflicted about it. But it was interesting because one of the requirements anytime you wrote a proposal for animal research was what happens to the animal when you're done with the research. And and that was an interesting, though, very difficult thing to contemplate, which is like they did not want you starting something where you did not have like for the rest of the animal's life, a plan of what was going to happen with it. And to this point, right, this idea that I think that gets missed, right? Great, we've done the survey and I've got the stack of surveys sitting here and let's say it's on my computer and then I leave that job. If I'm the only one who's ever touched this data, I'm the only one that knows about it and there's not an explicit plan for what happens to it. Does it just sit on the computer and the next person who gets it then has access to that? Do they understand where that data came from and what's sensitive about it? I mean, there's that's a really good point. And I think even just this idea of the data life cycle that concept is often a foreign one. We don't think about the fact that the data has a point where someone thought we should have a d- data. This idea came into being somehow. So the decision to even approach this project had to start and who was involved in that decision and that ideation. And then to the like procedures for picking what data we're going to collect and how we're going to collect it and then executing on that and then analyzing it and the sharing of it, as you were saying, and then the the long-term management of it. And that's a lot to think about. And again, you might only touch one part of it and only think about your piece, but you still need to be aware of that whole cycle and how you fit into it. Absolutely. And it can feel really overwhelming. So one thing I like to do, I'm a visual learner and um, I, I like to map that out visually with teams and get people in a room. Um, And some people might just be involved in one part of the process. And sometimes you find out that we don't know this whole middle part of it. Like we, we actually don't know how data is getting from A to B. And that can feel scary. It can feel really vulnerable to admit that we have this missing piece of that data journey, but you don't know what you don't know. And it's just a, a first step of, of, getting those gaps out there, understanding your blind spots so that you can address them. And I love the idea of actually mapping it because if you have to put pen to paper or marker to whiteboard and illustrate and annotate the life cycle, you'll be forced to recognize when you're like, well, I knew A and C, but I don't have anything to connect it. And I hadn't thought about that because the data actually just showed up on my server and I had thought about who was processing it to get it there or whatever the step was. Absolutely. One thing I like to do in that process too is have participants identify their blind spots and identify specifically who would need to be in the room to give sight to that. So whose voices are we missing? What questions can we not answer? Um, And who isn't at the table that we need to include in some way? I, I think that's such an important conversation about the who isn't at the table that we need to invite. Because if you're not asking that, if you're not looking around, you may think, oh, we've got everybody. So 
no, I love that that idea of of mapping it and then figuring out who knows those steps, who could tell us or tell us concerns about those steps. So I'm going to ask a question that I kind of already know the answer to, but I think it leads us to an interesting conversation about the, you know, is there a single set of data ethics? Like I will have people say, okay, well, I, can you give me a template, right, for, for my ethical behavior around data and tell me the things that I need to, to work on? Like, does that exist? Is there that, that from on high template of <laughs> perfect data ethics? Um, no, there, there isn't, but there are and I, I, I use this term lightly, quote unquote, accepted norms around data ethics. And I, I say that loosely in that no set of ethics or norms is 100% accepted. And that looks different in different contexts. And then there are so many loopholes in what that looks like. So we could say that respecting data privacy is an accepted data principle or, or ethical principle. But what does that actually mean? Um, what, is, what does that mean when you get down to the technicality of, yes, we respect user privacy, uh, but I haven't read the fine print of my third-party vendor agreement, and they're actually using it in X way that I didn't know about. So like, things are murky, and we live in that murkiness, and it's stressful, but that is just <laughs> where we are and, and where we're going to be. So yes, there are some generally accepted norms that have developed over several decades around data ethics, particularly as it relates to uh, human data subjects. So data minimization, uh, reducing the amount of personal information that you collect to what's absolutely necessary transparency. So being clear about the purpose of data collection, how it's used, how it's shared, et cetera, uh, informed consent. And that's not the only basis on, on which data can be collected, but in many cases, uh, having unambiguous consent is a, or at least an aspirational goal when it comes to consent. And very various other expressions of a shorter set of, of norms. But I would say in the same way that there is not one accepted set of organizational values, there's not one accepted set of data ethics. And how you as an organization define those ethics is really a reflection of the values that you have as an organization and how you navigate that is an expression of your risk appetite and how you hold those values and tension on a day-to-day basis. Do you have any advice or pointers for navigating that sort of cultural nuance of having these data ethics conversations? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say, you know, start with who you are as an organization. What is your mission? What is your goal? What values do you have around how you design the work that you do, how you carry out the work that you do, how you work with one another, how you see the world and how you treat the community? that you work with and serve. And then remember that the data that you collect, the products that you design, the services that you design for people and the processes that you use to assess impact are a reflection of those values and are tied to the communities that you, you work with. So I'd say always come back to 
to who are you? Who do you want to be in the world? And then you can translate those values back to how you treat data, how you operationalize that in practice. That's going to be a longer term effort. And it's okay for that to be longer term. But that first starting point of having the the hard conversations around who are we and does the way that we collect and use data reflect who we are is a really good starting point. I think that's so critical because like we were saying at the beginning, it can be it can feel overwhelming and technically overwhelming to start this conversation. But really the conversation starts with something that you should at least have a passing familiarity with. But we hope that your organization has had some conversations about values. And if you haven't, you need to do that anyway, right? Not just for data. That needs to be something that you're clear about in your organization of who you are and what you stand for. Because if you don't know what you stand for, you're going to fall down and be misled a lot. You're going to make decisions that are counter to that if you're not clear. And so having that conversation about who we are, you can lay out and prioritize those values, generally speaking. And then every time a process for data or an opportunity to collect data comes along, you can hold it up to those and say, all right, does this process violate our commitment to generosity? Does this process you know, violate our commitment to shared uh, information and collective stakeholder input or whatever it might be? And that can be where you can also reach out for some technical support. If you're not clear the impact of a particular procedure, or if you don't know how to design a data process that embodies, you know, your value of courage or your value of of equality, then someone else can come help you design that. But they'll need to know what you're trying to achieve anyway. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about, because I think it's impacted so much with COVID-19 and our cultural response and our political and policy responses with lockdowns, a lot of things have changed. So much has changed about how we do things, how we do work. How has that impacted like the practice of data ethics? And I joke that there's now a like AC and BC, <laughs> like, or, like there was a before COVID and after COVID. So now in our AC life, how has that changed? Yeah. I think it's changed in so many ways. So there are a couple of levels. One is as organizations and and companies. So uh, for individual workers that aren't working in person anymore, and maybe the people that are designing and managing programs or designing technology with so many people working remotely, there has in an escalation in issues that were already pre-existing around worker surveillance or things measuring quote-unquote productivity or around equity and and exclusion in the workplace and in some ways shedding light on that and who has digital access, who, for whom is it possible to work from home with access to internet in a safe and quiet space and, and who for whom isn't it? Or alternatively, how does working from home and working remotely um, make it easier for people to participate in the workforce that maybe couldn't have before because of commutes or competing pressures with childcare, et cetera? So there are issues around equity that come with that, issues around digital surveillance and trust, et cetera. But then as it relates to the actual work that we're doing, I think um, those gaps around blind spots and proximity have really 
been exacerbated in in some ways. And again, uh, when it comes to data and, and technology, the issues that we already have in the quote unquote wild, uh, technology and, and data is, can be a way to address those issues, but it often just just as an expression of those same issues and, and tensions. So in you know developing social impact programs, often the teams at headquarters are both psychologically and physically separated from communities that you're working in. And COVID has made proximity really, really difficult. So those blind spots come into play, um, trust issues come into play. So issues around monitoring evaluation and demanding accountability uh, data, but without understanding the context, explaining those numbers or the real trade-offs, those pressures get heightened. And that's why I've tried to really, really hammer down on, on blind spot analysis during COVID with teams that aren't able to, to go out and work directly in the communities that they're working with. Um, and But I do think one good thing that's come out of it is like the escalation of localization efforts in, in some cases and realizing that Programs should have been run locally all along. And this has been the, you know, a jumping off point to making that happen faster. That idea of the challenges around trust was really interesting that it comes from both sides. You have a challenge of trust where if you're trying to collect data, but people are distrustful of what you're going to do with that data or of the methods through which you're collecting it, it will severely hamper your ability to collect the data at all, or it will render the data inaccurate or mis- you know, unusable because they're not willing to share what actually should have been collected. But then on the other hand, that data might be demanded because there is a lack of trust. There's a lack of trust that the organization or the program is doing what it said it was doing or that it's effective to the level that it was said it was effective to, or that we even just, we don't trust that our money is going to be used in a way that we agree with. And therefore we're going to use data, you know, as our our stick to make sure that that happens. I hadn't thought about both sides of that trust equation around data. Absolutely. And I think you see conversations about um, trust-based philanthropy coming to the forefront over the last couple of years, because in our traditional models of philanthropy, you, you start with a theory of change that you've internally developed in a place and time and with a certain set of actors in the room. And then you go out and define the outcomes that are going to define success. Um, And all of a sudden the world dramatically changes. And then what? Are you the right group of people to decide how the work is adapted in this dramatically new context? Or do you you trust the organizations that are, are working out in the world, making these choices every day to work with communities to redefine the outcomes and redefine the quote unquote theory of change and all these terms that don't necessarily resonate with with people that are making hard choices every day. So I think one good thing is that we've had to have these conversations as a sector about trust, about flexibility, about decision-making in programs because really hard decisions have had to be made and made fast, faster than they've been made before. No, that's, that's great. 
You've shared a number of things that are great activities and actions that people can take a blind spot analysis for any given program or, or process that you have. This idea of mapping your data life cycle, especially if that's not a term you've heard of. You know, if, if you own a piece of a data process, there's a rest of a process that exists somewhere out there. And if you don't know it, can you pull the team together to actually be able to map that? So I highly recommend people try that, you know, whether you're the one typing in donor data or you're the one getting the report that lands on the desk, like there is a life cycle for every single one of those data points. Do you have any other last actions that you want to share for things that people could do short term to actually move towards embracing data ethics? Absolutely. So a few things. One, there are great communities out there that have people that care about these issues that have resources and best practices and are having good conversations. So you don't have to recreate the wheel. There are people that are in the same place that you are or have been through the the conversations that you might just be starting that are here to listen and help. So the responsible data.io community that Engine Room coordinates is a fabulous place for social impact and, and nonprofit practitioners to have these conversations. I love the All Tech is Human community of practice of people that are working on data and technology ethics, uh, both in industry and in nonprofits, the public sector. It's a, a great, great resource for those that are, are working on these issues. And then I would say to take stock of the data that you have as an organization, not knowing what data that you have and collect and where it that is a, a massive, massive blind spot. And you just don't know what you don't know. So taking stock of, of the data that you collect, where it's housed, what data it represents, and what types of data and really assessing that in starting to understand the volume and diversity of the data that you and your, your team members may have. And then one thing I, I really recommend for teams is going through the exercises and having the conversation of how would we respond in a worst case scenario? So let's say you've taken stock of the data that you have, and you realize that we actually collect more sensitive data than we understood. Or actually, we have a lot of data from children that we we didn't, you know, fully anticipate having in our our networks or uh, sensitive photos, whatever it is. Going through that exercise of what would we do in a worst case scenario if this data was accessed or shared or whatever that headline is of you know disgruntled employee uh posts sensitive photos of children to Facebook on their way out like what would you do and talk about that with your legal team or your your legal officer with your IT director with your program director uh, or you may, you know, you might be a really small organization as just you and two other people or your whole organization sitting down and having that conversation together between the five of you and go through it because it's going to be scary at first because you might not, your, your answer might be, oh my gosh, I have no idea what we would do. And that's okay. That's honestly, that's usually the first starting point, but you can talk through it together and having a plan is better than having no plan when something happens. And the more that you practice and refine that, 
the easier it's going to be to respond to real time. So I like to do fire drills with my teams a couple times a year and then go back and debrief and talk about what we what we did right, what we can do differently and then, you know, document that and change the processes going forward. I've heard the term pre-mortem used sometimes in this kind of thing where you say, let's actually pretend that the dead body happened, right? And, but what we're going to do it before we end up with the dead body on our table. And that not only then do you get a chance to practice with the fire drills, but you may also be able to identify ways to prevent the bad thing from happening or reduce the likelihood that those bad things can happen. And by going through the exercise of like, let's pretend the worst things happen. What are those worst things? What is the worst things that could happen? And then how did they happen? How did we get there? If we're in our imagined scenario, how did we end up to the point where we had a discontrolled employee with access to sensitive photos that they put on Facebook? Like, okay, maybe actually what we need to do is put those somewhere else, right? Those photos shouldn't exist just on the shared drive. They should be somewhere where we can log access to it. And maybe we have an alert anytime they're accessed or whatever it might be. So I think that's a great idea to just say, let's sit down and come up with all of the things that scare us see what we can do to reduce that risk. Because like you said, we have a responsibility for caring for the data that we have and thinking about those worst case scenarios, making sure you reduce the risk for them and that you actually practice, if they happen, how you'll minimize the damage when they do is critical. I mean, that's the whole point of fire drills. We do everything we can to keep the building from catching on fire. And then we think about all the ways it could catch on fire and we try to reduce or get rid of those. But then we still practice fire drills so mm -hmm. that in the case it does catch on fire, we all get out of the building. Right, right, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about this today. There's so much important information here. We will post the links to the communities that you mentioned um, in our show notes. So definitely check those out if, you're, if you want to follow up with any of those communities. We'll have a summary of these actions so that you can get started uh, actually putting data ethics into practice in your organization. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's great to talk with you. That was my interview with Alexandra Robinson about data ethics. I hope that you do take some time to think about your own data life cycle, even if you feel like it's an incredibly simple one, because you may find some of those decision points that are hidden. Like we discussed with Heather Krause, sometimes these decisions are so unconscious we don't even recognize them as decisions at all. You can also think about, as Alexandra laid out, this idea of a hierarchy of values. What is it that matters to you? What is it that matters to your team? What is it that guides the work of your organization? Can you be explicit about how those values connect the decisions that you make around your data? Alexandra mentioned a number of really great resources, communities to join, like responsibledata.io. And so we will link to those resources in our show notes, both in the podcast apps. You can scroll down to the show notes and see those links, or you can always access all of the show notes that are available on our website, heartsouldata.com. This is episode 36. So if you go to heartsouldata.com slash EP hyphen 36, you will be able to find the show notes. Of course, you can always find a whole index of every episode on that website as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. And as you may have noticed, I've been trying to find a good ending for 
this podcast, what's an appropriate sign-off for a podcast called Heart, Soul, and Data? My son's current favorite book is Dinotopia. Their greeting, hello and goodbye, is breathe deep, seek peace. And I was wondering about how you guys think about a sign-off of breathe deep, seek truth. So with that, take care and I'll see you on our next episode where we explore data models and how we can use a logic model of our organization to build that data model. You have been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Miraconus, an analytics education, consulting, and data services company devoted to helping nonprofits and social enterprises amplify their impacts and thrive through data. You can learn more at Merakinos.com, M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.